Hello and welcome to this hard-packed episode of the Ski Podcast. The Ski Podcast is the UK's longest-running ski podcast, and now it comes with a Swiss flavour. We are partnered with Switzerland Tourism, and Switzerland is the home of some of the biggest ski areas in the world, such as the Four Valleys, which is Verbia, Nendaz, and all those. There's Zermatt, and which is linked to Chavinia, which is the Matterhorn Ski Paradise. Um, I think it's about I don't know, a quarter or maybe a half of the Port de Slay. And also there's the um, Arosa Lenzenheiden. Uh, and Swiss Tourism will be here all the time to help us explore as much of the mountains as they can over the winter. So thank you very much, Swiss Tourism, for being our podcast supporter. You can subscribe to the podcast when you're listening to it. Click on the subscribe no matter what platform you listen to listen it to. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Oh, no, that's just me on Instagram, isn't it, Ian? Um, at, uh, what am I? At The Average Skier. You can go to um, at The Ski Podcast on Twitter. Find us on Facebook. Or you can email us um Ian at the ski podcast.com or go to our website, the ski podcast.com. It's been quite long enough time now. Ian hasn't spoken, so here is the co host of the podcast. It's Ian Martin. Hi, Ian. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Very good. That's enough of Ian. Um, <laughs> we've got a jam jar full of snowy podcasting stuff to get through before it melts. Coming up to today's show, we've got lots and lots of fresh snow. We've got fondue eating, ski slope AE, impressive ski photos, and Valdezair news. Ian, how would you like to start the podcast? Uh, well, let's talk about snow. Why not? Because it's the middle of November and uh, yeah, it's looking great. I mean, how you, you are sitting in the Alps right now. What's the view like out of your window? Oh, I've got about five centimetres on the tops of the trees. I'm at a thousand metres. Um, I Before the podcast, um, I was clearing snow. Um, it takes me quite a while. I've got quite a big parking area. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's looking exciting. I can see a top of a mountain. There's a lot of snow up there. The other day I went up with the kids. There was a snowfall at the beginning of the week and we made snowballs. It was that really sticky stuff that you could actually roll into giant balls. But you had to be careful because it was picking up right off the grass and I stood in quite a few cowpats. <laughs> so there you go. That's my snow report. OK, well, the, the gist is that it's, it's definitely looking very positive. Lots of snowfall coming down. And I think what we'll probably find, is by the time this podcast comes out, I reckon a couple of resorts will have done uh, a last-minute opening just for the weekend because they all love to trump each other. Like Val Terenz is due to open um, next weekend, the 23rd, 24th. I um, need to look at the calendar of, uh, of um, November. Yeah, 23rd. I reckon someone might open up just for the weekend. We'll see. I'm hoping that happens here because um, I don't have any ski touring kit. Otherwise, I'd be up there, Ian, um, at the weekend having a good old hike. I need to get some, Ian. Maybe someone should send me some, if you're listening to the podcast, send me some ski touring kit. That's what I'd like. While, um, we're, while, while so, we're on snow, can um, I ask you if there's anywhere in particular you look for your, your snow info, apart from out the window? Um, mainly out the window. I do use a paid-for website, Ian. but. I was one, yeah. I use, I pay, I subscribe to um, a website that cost me twenty seven pounds a month, and it's right. good. It's a long, so, um, no, it's twenty seven pounds a year. So I'm a long range forecaster, but I do quite like. Um, I get snow alerts as well from J two J two Ski, um, which are quite good. You get that as well, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, we discussed you know different snow sources a while ago, but um, J two Ski tends to be J two Ski tends to be 
what I'm looking at on a more regular basis, mainly because it's free. <laughs> unlike you, I'm not uh, investing uh, in it. But based on the trips that I've done when I've been tracking it, it's also pretty reliable as well. So I'm often looking on there to see where the snow is coming. When I'm looking, for example, for uh, like social content to share, I'll have a look, see where they're predicting the most snow is coming right now, and then go and have a look at their webcams or their social pages and, and nab a few photos to share. And the snow alert web, um, email that comes through is pretty um, pretty instantaneous. It comes through when it's ready, and it's got a good amount of information in it. I do like it. Yeah. And the resort guides on there, I always find them quite useful. Uh, I, I must admit, I don't look at that at all. If I'm going out to a particular resort, I would sign up. Uh, you can sign up for like a snow update uh, email and choose which resort you want it for. And so because I tend to go out, you know, four or five times a winter, I'll basically subscribe for that resort until I go there. Then I'll change it to the next resort and change it to the next resort. So, um, listener, if you wanted to um, have a, a, a check it out, a good source of snow reports, have a look at that. And there's a forum there as well. It's um it's good for nerdy skiers, I think, as well. Um, Ian, I want to before we move on to the to the next bit. Um, I want to. I the other day I drove back from the UK. Um, I went I went there and picked up my other car to bring it back because um and needed a second car for the trips I'm going on. And obviously I didn't. Uh, it's a long story. I couldn't use this um any podcast. I was quite lonely and I started thinking about ski flight free. Oh yeah. Um, your yeah and. I think you need some help, Ian. And I oh, thought yes. I'd um, got, got some ideas for you. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure that flight shame in, in the ski industry will work. And I think it's, you know, you've got to keep doing it and you, it won't not happen if we don't do it. Yeah, here's can, some I, ideas just, can I, I just chip in there? I'm not actually trying to flight shame anyone. Flight shame is something that people have. I'm not trying to, you know, say to anyone, oh, you shouldn't be flying. All I'm trying to do is to get people to think about seeing if they can travel by an alternative method rather than flying. No, I think it, I'm not. I'm not knocking it. I sorry. I'm sorry. I used the wrong word, Ian. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. That. But go on. Tell me. Tell me your thoughts. So I did wonder. Um, I think you know um, we need to help people do more. So maybe they could have um, uh, a heat-free day in their chalet. That would help, don't you think? <laughs> um, what about a lift-free day? Um, but they don't turn the lifts off, so well, it's still you be know, going. it's interesting um, you, you, that you mentioned that lift-free day because um, there's a lot of kind of what you might call uh, greenwash out there. And I got a press release yesterday from, uh, I'm, I'm not going to mention who they are, but anyway, these people are uh, organising a uh, trip to Japan and uh, they're billing it as, you know, a sustainable uh, trip. Uh, and it's actually, one of the things they say in the press release is, you know, one of the reasons, you know, it's a, it's a good trip from a sustainability point of view is they're going ski touring and not taking the lifts even though they're encouraging everyone to fly to Japan. Sounds like a bit of greenwashing to me. But you could uh, uh, go ski touring and argue you're not using the lifts. But I think there's like other little things in seriousness that people can do. Like they could choose not to get, you know, in some resorts there's minibus services. Maybe you don't need to get the minibus service. You could catch the public bus. Um, I know it's a convenience thing and gets you on the slopes like 10 minutes earlier, but you okay. can take those minibuses. And what about, you know, not having the, the English tea bags or the English bacon that is specially driven over to the Alps? And maybe, you know, try and encourage your tour operator that you go with regularly to steer away from that. 
Uh, and also, Ian, you know, you don't have to send every Instagram picture, do you? Because, you know, um, an Instagram picture takes up lots of storage. And that's a big contributor to um, global warming is uh, photo storage on Instagram. But my overall point is, Ian, as I thought, to help, right? Yeah. Um, I thought one of the good places to start would to be encourage people to take more greener options of um, ski trips, including, you know, catching the train and all those things is maybe um, travel agents could be a bit more responsible as well. And when they propose um, their selection of ski holidays, one of those options could be a slightly greener option, whether it's uh, the, uh, the the most economical ski resort or one that uses complete uh, reusable um, power to power their infrastructure. Yeah. Or, you know, is Club Med more... Um, uh, environmentally friendly because it's a communal living space as opposed to staying in thousands of individual chalets uh, and I've spoken to a travel agent and they are going to um, get on board and they are going to um, include a recommendation of a greener option within those options that they send people for their ski holidays and we're going to have a chat about how people have responded to it later on in the season how's that Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I know there are other agencies who already kind of offer that. But actually, it's quite interesting what you said about, you know, how people can source their uh, products. Because, I mean, we do have on the on the show notes or the plan for today to talk about the uh, Shugan Group. Um, I think it is, we, we should probably just move on to that now, the Shugan Hotel Group in Switzerland. Did, did you look at their website at all? Uh, tell me more about it. I've read the article. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, basically, they're climate they're climate neutral. I mean, there's a press release uh, thing saying about how they're uh, yeah, climate neutral. But I had a, look, a further look into it, and they are genuinely doing you know a lot. And it's a lot of those things that you're talking about uh, uh, there. Uh, they've got electric charging stations, and they're recycling everything. I mean, they've looked at every step of the way from the rooms to the bathroom to the restaurant, you know, local foods, sustainable food, you know, no plastic bottles, all the kitchen waste that goes to biogas. Um, in terms of, you know, what they use to clean the hotel, eco-certified uh, materials, They've got heat exchanges, heat recovery systems, but I found it most interesting. They've got like an ice battery in the cellar, uh, meaning that the entire building complex, and what we're talking about here is uh, particularly the Valsana uh, Hotel in Arosa in Switzerland, uh, without any need for fossil fuels at all. So the hotel itself has practically uh, zero carbon emissions. And yeah, I oh, found that very really interesting. Impressive. It doesn't it doesn't sound like greenwash to me. Having read through it all, it genuinely sounds like, you know, this is a hotel basically they're not found the previous one. I guess you've got to take into account that the carbon cost of, you know, all the concrete, etc. But they've really made an effort to ensure that every single element of this uh, is as efficient as possible. And where again, if I wanted to stay there? Uh, Arosa in Switzerland. Ah, very exciting. Um, while we're talking about Switzerland, Ian, shall we talk about the third annual Swiss um, <laughs> fondue making competition that's on? It's on right now as we talk. Yeah. And um, are you going over there then? Um, well, do you know what? It's not on my way to. I was going to go to Sasfe um, at the weekend to um, get some lifts and other reasons to pick up my um, magic pass. I'm very excited about that. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's not on my way, unfortunately. Okay. It's the other side of um, the Geneva Lake. Yeah. But I'd never heard of the, the World Fondue competition before, but apparently it's the third time that it's uh, happened. Uh, and so basically, com- you know, competitors um, test each other with their fondue 
making skills. Well, when I saw the link to it, and I did wonder, is it going to be, uh, is it who could eat the most fondue? Because that would be a <laughs> horrific competition. Um, and, I mean, the poos are bad enough after just one normal fondue. Can you imagine? Um, but um, this, this competition is in the Tartagin um, area, which is part of the Jura. So I think the nearest ski resort to that is La Dole, if you're interested in that sort oh, yeah. of information there. Yeah, man. I ran through uh, La Dole when I did that um, Lausanne de Geneva um, trail run a few years ago. The highest point is on, that Jura, on that Jura uh, area. So there you go. If anyone's living in Geneva and slightly travelling in time, because I think it finishes on the 17th, then get to the World Fondue Competition or put it in your diary for next year. Uh, bearing in mind that we are um, sponsored by Switzerland Tourism, Ian. Yeah. What's your favourite fondue? Do you prefer the Swiss or the French fondue? Mm, I think Swiss. I was reading about it the other day. You've got to have a combination of... Um, it's all AOC, isn't it? Appellation Controle. Uh, mm-hmm. It's got to be Freiburg cheese and Gruyere cheese. Uh, so yeah, your ideal fondue has those two in it. Interesting. I like. I prefer eating Swiss fondue because then the way they make it is slightly different and a bit more labour intensive. But I prefer making French fondue because it's a lot easier. <laughs> and you're in France. So. There you go. And I'm in France, yeah. So it's easier to get. Um, I can't get those uh, area of providence cheeses specified in the Swiss reference in their local shop for me. Right. Um, next up, Ian, you've been uh, talking about some A and E. You're right. Everything okay? Yeah, everything's all right with me. But uh, I can't remember how I came across this. But I heard about this uh, TV program that uh, was made in Valterens last season, and it's going to be coming up. Uh, in the UK and I guess on any kind of satellite channel or whatever it's on it's on channel W uh, which I did check I could get on my TV I think it's probably like a free view channel or something like that but channel W and it's starting on the Monday the 9th of December and on for a couple of weeks an hour every night and it's called Ski A&E and uh, yeah I had a uh, met up or uh, had an interview with the producers of the programme find out a bit more about it. Okay, excellent. So um, I'm uh, just on the line now with uh, with uh, John Quinn and Sean, uh, is it Doherty or Doherty? Doherty, that's right. Doherty, yeah, okay. And uh, you are from uh, North One TV. Now, the reason we're on the line just now is that I can't remember how I heard about it, but there's going to be what I consider to be quite an exciting programme coming up, uh, set in Valterens, where you follow the Peace Rescue Service around. Is uh, Do I have the right end of the stick there? Yeah, pretty much so. We, we were with the ski patrollers uh, in their huts, and we would be with them on a daily basis and follow them as they went uh, to rescue people on the slopes. But then we'd also follow them into the medical centre, and if they went to hospital, we'd, we'd sometimes go down the mountain into the hospital with them, uh, especially if there were serious injuries. But we also spent a lot of time in and around the resort working with some of the seasonaires there, some of the British guys who are out working in the resort. Really? So, so okay. it's, it's pretty much a 360 look at what it's like to live in, in, and work in, in, a, in a ski resort through the season. Great. Well, I, you know, I'm already uh, looking forward to it. I mean, it's, there aren't really that many programmes about skiing on TV. Uh, you know, how did, how did that crop up? I mean, what gave you the inspiration to get out there? 
Uh, we, we had a conversation with the channel, uh, Helen Nightingale, commissioning editor, and said she was looking for interesting precincts to do something of a, of a medical nature. They have a lot of success with Inside the Ambulance on the W channel. Okay. Um, Can't but, claim to have watched it. Sorry, what, <laughs> this is, where is she from? Uh, w Channel uh, and UK TV generally. Okay, but this, this right. was specifically a, a request for us. So we, we do a lot of work with UK TV. And yeah. um, we we went away and the development team, particularly our, our young researcher, Claire, um, just had an idea. Why don't, we, why don't we do skiing? There's no skiing. It's quite aspirational. It's a bit different. It's not like Sun C and A&E and, and, and that kind of Magaluf uh, uncovered type end of, end of the holiday scale. She got in touch with several resorts we had three or four bites on it, and actually Val Turin was so helpful. Um, right, interesting. That, uh, we, we had a meeting then at one of the, the festival events, um, where, where the tourist board events, and they, they came on board, and, and we, we just suddenly uh, it got commissioned, and we found ourselves trying to get a team together and send them out for a, a test week for uh, Varsity in, in the early December. Right, year. okay. So you started in December, so that would have been a baptism of fire, I imagine, because I've been out to Val Torrens for some of the student weeks before, and um, I don't know what happens on the slopes, but hypothermia would probably be one of the uh, most <laughs> likely problems. So while I was there, how did that, how did that week go? Because that's a huge event, isn't it? Yeah, huge event. But, you know, the resort itself didn't bat an eyelid. I mean, it's used to having uh, quite a lot of people, quite a lot of students turning up uh, uh, for various weeks. So when I was sent to the Pistas, oh, you've got three and a half thousand students arriving uh, tomorrow, they'd say, yes. And, you know, to give their usual Gallic shrug and go, yeah, we used we used to it. it, it you know, they don't really uh, bat an eyelid when it comes to things like that. Um but obviously, it, 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 it was a fantastic week because uh, you've got all these young people who are, some are very new to the slopes, so we followed some of the students who had never skied before, but also we followed the two uh, two teams, the Oxford and Cambridge teams, as they uh, tried to win the, the, the downhill competition. So you put that alongside all the medical issues and the medical cases that we follow. And it was a really jam packed week, our first week. Uh, but Excellent. Was- so it's more than just um, kind of following the, the, the peace or peace rescue. There's a, uh, you're finding out more about life in the resort as well at the same time. Yeah. There's we, as well as, as well as obviously doing the medical stories, which were probably about four or five per episode. We also feature the season as, uh, who are living out there, working out there. There's some great uh, characters. There's a young girl, uh, 19-year-old Lizzie Brown, who is a Great Britain skier, and she's doing her uh, sports science degree at Birmingham University. At the same time, she's working in ski set, uh, doing ski hire, and every spare second she has, she's on the slopes practicing. Um, so th- th- there's some really good characters in the resort. We we were looking to to, to find them and film e- with them. E- excellent. And um, in terms of kind of getting permissions from the resort, you said you approached a few resorts about it, try and put it together in the first place. And mm. you've got a lot of different parties to pull together to be able to make this happen, and, and I guess to be able to film out on the slopes. So who did you have to bring together to make that happen? Well, it was the it was the four main bodies, wasn't it? Once the, we had no objection from three valleys and uh, the, the representative PR representative from Valterem, uh, uh, Beranger, uh, then it was a case of getting the main bodies together. So it was uh, the resort as a whole; they were a yes. But we also had to get permission from the medical centre, obviously yeah. spending so much time there. Uh, Sea Tambert, the lift 
operators and yeah. of course the, the ski, ski patrol, patrol itself yeah. so it'd yeah. be kind of a, a quadruple permission thing but it, it all came together um and they were all in, incredibly helpful and opened the doors to us uh you know, a, amazing setup they've got there and i, th- I think you know to some degree they were very keen to show off quite how well run it is so it's not well, like well, a scaremongering yeah, thing yeah. Yeah, this is about if you know everyone loves it it's a high octane sport but don't worry if anything does go wrong you're in the best possible hands here it's for really... sure. I mean, it's, you know, this sort of thing has been uh, covered in different ways before. I mean, possibly you've watched that uh, Netflix series, uh, The Horn, and that's, you know, kind of specifically, I think, looking at their heli uh, rescue service, isn't it? But it, yes, is, it, yeah. is it like that at all or is it very different from that? Well, the, the, we did film with the helicopter emergency crews in Courcheval, um, which went all around the region. So there are a few rescues which do have horn-like elements to it um but generally we we were in the huts where you know things like when when you go up uh you're three thousand two hundred meters up it's minus 30 it's a white out you're in a hut with four five pistas and they're cooking fried duck with a cheese course (laughs) you know that never, never seems to amaze us how Whatever happened, they would still have a three or four course lunch uh, in the huts, you know. So we were we were getting to know those guys. So uh, we were much more sort of um, on the ground, as it were, uh, yeah. than than the than the horn. But yeah. uh, certainly, the, the, it doesn't mean the rescues were any any less dramatic. Uh, we had some pretty traumatic cases uh, that we followed out there. Um, so it, it's. I think we got the best of both worlds. We really. did. No, the, the, I should say they very rarely finish those three course meals. <laughs> right. Okay. And when you say quite traumatic, I mean sometimes in the worst case scenario, someone would get helicoptered off the mountain or something like that. Is that something that you were tracking, perhaps? Yeah, we have. We've got. I think probably a helicopter rescue in every episode, uh, mm. pretty much. Um, And obviously, just the practicalities of taking a film crew, putting a film crew on a mountain, um, having to follow the ski patrollers down, because those guys, they don't hang about. You know, they they don't go around moguls. They go over the top of them with a a sled behind them. How many did you have in your team filming? Well, we had three three two-man crews plus a single uh, guy who was there just doing drone shots and beauty shots. Right. Uh, so there were seven on the mountains filming or in the medical centre filming. Um, right. And were they all good skiers be- before that? I mean, presumably <laughs> they had to be, right? They they had to be. It was, it was a very interesting call-out uh, that we had to make, thinking, well, there's a Venn diagram we want here of people who can shoot fantastically, people who know how to get permissions on the ground very quickly from people yeah. and know the sensitivities involved in that from a documentary perspective and compliance. Um, and... They also have to ski incredibly well. And we thought no one will be able to match these three criteria. And the people that came through were genuinely mind-blowing. We got some incredible people on the team uh, who were brilliant all three. That's that's amazing. And probably, you know, the dream job for some kind of, you know, cameraman who, you know, loves skiing uh, as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I remember the first rescue we did, I was following the cameraman, Adam Boyd, and uh, the AP as they were skiing down. And Adam is skiing without poles, following the the ski patrol guy. And he's gone over the top of moguls as well, but he's carrying an FS7 camera, which is a pretty pretty heavy camera, Uh, a backpack on. He's got a, a spare 
a camera around his neck and he's shooting the whole time going down. And he's keeping his camera pretty steady, I must say. I mean, some of the shots are remarkable. As well as following up close um, these ski patrollers, we've got shots of the resort from drones, which just make wow. the, the place look incredible. That's that. That's great. So I'm mindful, John, that you need to... Uh, to I go do. I'm going to bow out to can I just check, or can you tell us what channel is it on? When can people watch it, and and how? Uh, it's it's on W, one of the UK TV channels, uh, and it starts on the 9th of December. It's on for two weeks, Monday to Friday, stripped across the whole week, uh, an hour long, and we think it's eight o'clock. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, I'll definitely be watching it, and um, you know, I'm sure our podcast listeners will be watching it as well. So, thank you very much for your Sorry. time. That's brilliant. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. I mean, I have to say, I was sceptical, Ian, before um, listening to that interview. What? But it actually sounds like it'd be a fairly decent program. I mean, I yeah. can't review it without seeing it. <laughs> no, but exactly. it sounds it sounds better than what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, me as well. I did look on W, and I saw uh, that currently they're running a couple of programs where they follow ambulance crews around and things like that. And I kind of thought it would probably be one of those i don't know a bit over the top and sensationalist and who knows it may well be but it actually sounds very interesting and i'm really looking forward to watching it yeah especially as um, one of the guys sounded exactly like david Badil, and if he's got anything to do with it it must be good right <laughs> yeah uh yeah well as he's operating under an alias but but yeah you know i'll be i'll be i'll be recording it and then um then watching it yeah This is the Ski Podcast, kindly supported by Switzerland Tourism. To stay in touch with the show, find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at the Ski Podcast, email Ian or Jim at theskipodcast.com or head to our website, the Ski Podcast. Now to come in the show, I'm going to chat to a guy called Rubens Crab about his award-winning ski photography and we're going to get our yearly lowdown on what's happening in Powder's Air Steve Angus. So, yeah, um, skiing on TV, that's good. And, um, you know, I've noticed our listening figures going up here, which is great news. So that means, you know, more people are listening to audio, do you think? Well, I know. Um, for sure, more people are listening to our uh, uh, podcast, which is great. Thank you, listener, for being one of them. But also, there have been a few stats which show that just generally um, more people listening to a podcast. Uh, I saw one in the States the other day which said that the um, mobile podcast mobile app usage has increased 60% since January 2018. That's over in the States. So that is like a massive, massive increase. And they think that growth uh, trend is going to continue. That's some research by Adobe. And then Rajar, they're the people who must stand for radio something or other. I saw this in an article where they're saying about how you know way more people are listening to Chris Evans's show on, on Virgin Radio, but it also said that um, the number of people listening to podcasts has gone up uh, massively, and their their increase wasn't quite as big, but it was still forty percent, forty percent more people listening to podcasts than a year ago. So, listener, if you're one of those people who've who's joined uh, within the last year. Um, tell your friends to get, get, uh, join you and um, that's your line actually isn't it Jim tell your friends your, your cool ski friends that's it yeah tell all your cool ski friends you're listening to a cool ski podcast hmm. uh, maybe disprove later on in the show um, 
Uh, also, I noticed there was a stat I saw Ian the other day. Um, yeah. Something like, I mean, you know, podcast um, is increasing, but there's something like 54 million podcasts in the podcast sphere. It's wow. quite a lot to choose from. So thanks for listening in to this one, eh? <laughs> Um, I, the other week, um, I was um, contacted by a man called Ruben and he has um, won awards for his photography of skiers. Um, He's made a trilogy of photos. Um, One was starting by capturing a skier um, in the Northern Lights and the second one was um, capturing a skier skiing past uh, a silhouette of the um, sun with the moon in the back in the foreground. Obviously, that's called an eclipse, um, which is an incredible, incredible photo. And he's just released the third of that, and he's hoping to win some awards. And he's made a movie about it. And I've spoken to him about his projects and the movie he made. Rubens Crab is an award-winning ski photographer who has spent the last decade chasing a dream to produce a trilogy of iconic photos that put skiing into the sky. Before we start. Rubens, can you tell me about how your passion for skiing grew? Uh, for me, skiing was part of what my family did from a uh, pretty young age. Uh, my family was really interested in getting us into a sport that we could do together uh, years and years later. And we still do try to get together once a year, if possible, to go skiing. So it's a pretty cool avenue for that. And I'm sure many listeners could understand that side of things. And then photography, I sort of always loved watching my dad use his old SLR back in the day on vacations. And then that gave me a bit of interest. And when I was a teenager in high school, I started shooting photos and that hobby just sort of got out of control and turned into a passion. And then I did a year of photography school and then moved into my van and tried to make a go of it as a professional ski photographer. And that van life only lasted for about half a year. And then I moved into Whistler and I've lived in the Whistler area and now in Squamish, which is the next town over. And I've been there for eight years. Wow. To do what you do um, and go out and put yourselves in these situations in the mountains, which is challenging, um, trying to get good images. And obviously you're working with some top flight skiers um, while you're out there. How, how good a skier do you need to be? Uh, I don't want to try to qualify exactly that I'm a good skier. That's not exactly where I'm at, but uh, I did put a concerted effort into that about uh, like six years ago. I started to realize that if I wanted to be able to photograph the way that I wanted to, which is sort of like shoulder to shoulder with the athletes in the terrain, not looking at it with a long lens, then I really needed to concentrate on my skills. So for a lot of the time, I was just concentrating on getting fitter, faster, and trying to ride and ski as much as I could. So it is very important. There are other photographers who do sort of like the long lens thing or different ways. And all of those perspectives are very valuable. You wouldn't want everyone shooting like me or it would be boring. So every different version is really good. Right. Let's talk about the project now. Um, we're obviously going to, you're here to talk about the, the third part in the series, but let's talk about that first iconic image that you captured amongst the Aurora Borealis. Yeah, it started quite a long time ago and I was looking for trying to sort of search around to find an idea that would be something new that people hadn't seen before. Um, So Aurora was sort of like, um, I had always been interested in seeing the Northern Lights and then I wanted to put skiing together with it. And that drew me up to the Yukon in the far north of Canada to try to put together this photograph. Um, And I didn't have a plan for the trilogy at that point. 
but uh, shortly thereafter, I started looking for the other options and came up with these other two ideas of the Eclipse and then also this most recent project, the Nebula. So your second project was um, when you went into the Antarctic, or sorry, the Arctic, to um, shoot some skiers um, silhouetted on, in front of a solar eclipse, and it's an amazing picture. But this is um, a movie you can watch um, on Salomon TV um, of you and the guys out there filming it. How did that come about? Uh, I told a ski magazine about the idea of trying to shoot that, and they basically just said, yes, go do that. And that by itself is really interesting. And I realized that we needed to find a place where we could shoot this, but then also a place where if we failed at the photograph, we would still have a story to fill in in place of the um, interesting image. So I uh, found this set of mountains that's in the far north of Canada that's not too frequently traveled in, but it's right under the latitude where the northern lights normally happen. So it was a pretty... Uh, pretty big undertaking. I had only gone winter camping one day before in my life, and then I was doing a week-long expedition in about minus 20. So it was a really big learning curve for me, but it was still, at this point, one of my favorite trips of my life. Just, you're young, you're ambitious, you don't even know like how tired and how cold you should get, so you just like go for it as much as you can. So I have a lot of uh, nostalgia that's sort of wrapped up in that photograph as well now. Now, obviously, you went out with a group of skiers, um, and it wasn't just one of them um, taking part to help you get the shot. So can you can you let me in a secret? Who was the skier silhouetted in the, in the image? Uh, to this day, I don't actually specifically know. And that was something that we decided uh, not to figure out. Like, I'm sure we could review some footage and look at the gear that the person's on. But it could be Cody Townsend, it could be Chris Rubens, it could be Brody Levin. After the eclipse, since uh, the, the filmmaker and I were staring directly into the sun, we realized that uh, we, could, we didn't know who anyone was in any of the footage. And then we also realized, like, everyone put in equal effort on this. So if we, give the, if we attribute this one photograph to a single person, then two people are going to sort of like lose out and it was no fault of their own. They were all doing the same action and it was just sort of chance of which thing worked out perfectly. Now um, in the, in the movie, if you want to watch it or do go and watch it, it's really fascinating. There's quite a bit of tension between you and the athletes. Um, uh, how did you, how did that go for you? Yeah. Uh, the, the whole trip was oriented around capturing this eclipse, but for the skiers, they hadn't, really looked into what this kind of thing would be. So they weren't very motivated by it, but we were spending a lot of days where we could have been out skiing, just like driving around on snowmobiles, looking at mountains and wondering like, would this line up, would this line up? So we wasted a bunch of time and I understand that they were sort of just like, well, whatever you're, you guys do your thing and we'll, we'll do whatever you need to do. The professional athletes are there to do their jobs. So they're going to comply, but they weren't really emotionally interested in it. And then after the eclipse, they're all like, wow, that was really good. So glad that we went up here. And instantly after, I was like, well, I'm glad that you guys are happy now. But I also sort of wish that you were a little bit more interested in this from the start. And it wouldn't have been so hard. Hmm. Bit of tough love. Bit of tough love. Um, so let's get on to your new project. Um, it's essentially a, a challenge to get a picture of some skiers inside the Milky Way. Uh 
So, well, I'll just describe the idea a little bit just so the viewers alongside. Uh, a nebula is this ga- uh, cloud of gla- gas that's in outer space that um, is a place where stars are being born, born, and you would recognize this kind of thing from images you see from NASA. Um, and this thing is out there, and it's even the size of the moon, like from our perspective, but it's just a little bit too dark for our eye to see. So to capture it, you need to use a long exposure and a big long lens, and then that makes a bunch of really massive technical issues for the photography side of things. And I won't go too far down that, but it, it just becomes pretty hard. So I had identified after the eclipse to that I wanted to try to shoot this at some point in time, and it took a while until I actually wanted to sort of open up this massive can of worms. And it ended up being a can of worms that it took me two years to get through and many, many more technical problems than I expected. Uh, and it made it into a pretty cool journey, but obviously at the same time, it's sort of like a comically ridiculous amount of effort to be putting into this one image. So it's, it's sort of a love-hate relationship with a project like this by the end of it. And in the, in the, in the documentary, uh, the one you're here to promote, um, there's a, there's a bit without giving it away, there's a bit where there's some serious tension and drama um, where, you know, potentially the camera doesn't work. And I mean, your face, I, I mean, that face told a thousand Well, um, it took a lot of learning. The, I, I ended up trying once, failing once, and then having a second attempt at it. But on that first failure, I had put so much effort into it already. And it takes a crew of four to be able to go out there. I need an assistant. I need a skier. And I need a cinematographer to be capturing footage. So it's a pretty expensive day and it's a lot of effort. And again, sort of no one understands what's going on in my head because it takes like two hours to try to explain to a person what we're all doing. So they're sort of all just out there trusting me. And then the whole thing catastrophically failed when I was out there. And I wasn't sure if you could even make this image. I would, I, there were so many technical barriers in my head at that point in time that I just thought I had recorded myself failing and that was going to be the end of my dream so it was a pretty crushing moment but they are um, beautiful pictures and you know i mean all hats off to you you've done a, a a fantastic job but i mean obviously that there is a question is you know in this day's technology you could have easily photoshopped these and not have to go right. through all this i art. i guess i am a little bit of a purist but i don't let, really think of it in that way in my head um, I could just have photoshopped these two things together and that would have been very, very simple, but it wouldn't really be that thing. Like I could have taken that photo that came out last year of a black hole and just photoshop a skier in front of it, but it, that's not really very interesting. You're not creating something. So I think that the this project of three images and a lot of the photography that I do is also a little bit of a pushback against our image overload, where if you want to succeed as a photographer, do you want to like record videos of you out shooting and post something every single day and create 300 pieces of media a year, well, you don't even remember what you've all shot. No one ever will. So I'm sort of fascinated by these projects that take a longer time and actually create something that is hopefully a little bit more interesting to really stick in your head. Because I know that you don't remember what I posted last week. No one does. But you might remember one of these kind of projects. Awesome. Thank you very much, Rubens. Um, if people want to watch this video, and they really should, it's well worth um, having a nosy. Uh, how can they find the information, please? 
Uh, if you go to nebula-film.com, you'll be able to find it. Or if you search my name, Ruben Krabba Nebula, I'm sure you'll be able to find a link that will lead you to the website for this. Awesome. Ruben, thank you very much. Uh, all the best. So, Ian, um, out of those three pictures that he's produced in his trilogy of photos, which uh, which is your favourite? Have you got a favourite? Have you looked at them? Uh, no, I mean, I saw a couple of them. They they are very impressive. They're very impressive indeed. And, uh, you know, I don't really, I don't think I could pick a favourite out. I mean, I think it's impressive that he actually goes and do it. He could have easily like, done that at Photoshop, and, but it's, they're stunning pictures. Um, <laughs> to watch his latest movie, you can go to nebula-film.com. Um, and watch it there. Thanks, Rubens, for your time. Um, now, from that, let's go and let's, let's find out about Val d'Azur, shall we, Ian? Well, I'm standing here down in Ladai in Val d'Azur, and um, I'm actually pretty speechless because um, this year, compared to um, this time last year and the year before that, and, and to be honest, most of the last few years, it's it's looking incredibly snowy out there. We've already had um, about 10 days of this cold snap. So right from the start of November, the weather has really moved in. I'm just watching a crane swivel around, carrying a little bit more uh, building materials as the last few um, construction projects are trying to complete before the lifts open. And talking of the lifts open, they um, only open, uh, it's uh, only about two weeks now until uh, the start of the season, uh, two and a half weeks. Um, so not long to go at all. And uh, as I said, there is a lots of snow around down here in town. Uh, 1850 meter altitude have had around about 25 30 centimeters of snow and there is um probably about the same amount to come this week alone so even before we get into the start of december it looks like there's already going to have been half a meter of snow uh, in town um so when the lifts open um as i said in about two and a half weeks time we might be in the situation where you can ski all the way down to town and they haven't actually started piecing stuff um certainly down down low um but they have had the snow cannons on and as i can see um half a dozen snow cannons firing out and these big mounds of snow which look like giant moguls have been created. Um, in fact, I was on the uh, the lower slopes in Ladai the other day. I sledged on it with my my young children, and uh, they are pretty big mounds of snow. I have to be said. So I think um, the news is that um, they have pieced um, or started to compact the snow down at altitude. Certainly up on the Valdezere Glacier, uh, they've done a lot up there. Uh, and lower down, uh, they haven't done so yet, um, I think, when the temperatures remain cold and the, this artificial snow uh, does build up a bit more, then they will get going with that. So things are looking very, very rosy and good uh, for the start of the season uh, in terms of snow. Uh, in terms of uh, things development-wise, there has been, as usual, a lot of developments. Um, the main um, things um, relating to construction, now, there haven't been any uh, lifts in Valdez uh, this year, new lifts, but there have been lots of well, there are lots of interesting uh, things that have happened, uh, such as the Soles Hotel that was started last uh, last summer has now been finished um, and it's open. Um, it's uh, going to be a very luxurious hotel right at the top of the mountain. Uh, it's opening up, um, I think, uh, right the first week in December. Uh, that is ready to rock and roll. Um, the... Uh, the hotel that was formerly known as the Brussels down uh, on the snow front in the centre of town, um, that is nearing completion. That's been a two-year project. Um, so uh, Mademoiselle Val d'Isère is going to be the name of the hotel. A um, bit of a controversial name. Lots of people a bit up in the arm, uh, have their arms in the air, I should say. The fact that the word Val d'Isère is used in a hotel's name. But uh, anyway, that's what it's going to be called. And that is going to be another five-star hotel opening up on the snow front. Um, and uh, it is huge. A very very big development um, as far as I know they haven't severed any um, snow making um, uh, cables um 
or uh, anything like that like they did last year so um, <laughs> there'll be no setbacks um, uh, so the hotel is almost finishing uh, and that'll be exciting to see um, uh, another hotel um, right there on the snow front opening up uh, to replace the Brussels and you might remember the Brussels um, was a very expensive a hotel and uh, they just kept putting the price up each year and apparently people just kept on paying these silly silly amounts to stay there uh, until it got to the stage where the owners um, just retired on uh, the proceeds from uh, all, all the people paying uh, over the odds to stay there so goodness gracious me what uh, the price will be at this new hotel um i do not know um down in Ladai, um, there is a new big construction project. The Tuffs restaurant um, near the bottom of the, uh, the Funaval um, is effectively being knocked down and started again. The uh, restaurant part has been uh, doubled in size. Uh, I'm just watching the crane swing around, building more um, roofing material over to a couple of workmen on the roof of it now, um, lowering into place. Um, and that roof um, is part of the new um, residential bit. Um, I think, um, from my, my understanding, is they're going to be some um, pretty upmarket luxury apartments that are going to go in there right on the snow front. Uh, now, my worry was always going to be that um, the access down uh, on the piece there, down to the Funaval, was going to get a little bit um, tight um, to get through. And with all the, the thousands of people trying to ski down to the Funaval at certain times of the year, it could get a bit busy. But I'm pleased to say it looks like they are doing some regrading of the land with a bulldozer at the moment to make it a little bit uh, more accessible as you come down the run there towards the Funaval. Of course, a little cut through that used to take um, back to um, the uh, Ladai gondola um, you can no longer take that but um, it looked um, to myself as if they were doing um, a bit of regrading further up the slope to allow you to uh, cut through to avoid that really nasty little bit that always gets icy on the lower part of the Oak Orange the uh, cut through is going to be uh, higher up above the YSE chalets some of the other things that have been happened um, the resort have been investing heavily in fibre optic cables so the internet speeds um, should be much faster and more reliable this winter there we go for forward. a speechless man he managed to talk non-stop for seven minutes um he managed to squeeze more information in that than the last four episodes of our podcast ian <laughs> unbelievable there's a lot going on in Baldur's there uh there is and you know steve is a very well formed informed uh, guy i mean i would say go back and listen to our previous podcast where he's featured but i guess it would be uh, completely outdated information and pointless but he has featured on the podcast before Thank you, um, Steve, uh, for that report. Very helpful. Um, anything you want to talk about in that report, Ian? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I'm going to Valdez in uh, January. I'll be probably get at least a day of skiing uh, in there. So if if things go well, uh, maybe I'll get to ski with Steve. Yeah, I imagine you won't be skiing. You'll just be making the most of that super high-speed broadband that they're putting in. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, it's interesting. I mean, that is something that makes a difference to people. Um, you know, the knowledge that you're going to have, you're going to be able to uh, post your Instagram photos or uh, your YouTube video, whatever it might be, or just stream Netflix um, can, can make a difference to people. Yeah, it's true. You know, you can imagine like exactly with it. Someone had been trapped in the desert for three days, really thirsty, and they rock up. They finally find somewhere to quench their thirst. You know, the first three questions probably would be in this order. Have you got a phone charger? Um, what's your Wi-Fi code? And can I have a drink of water, please? <laughs> yeah. Right. If you're lucky, I'll have been to Sasfe this weekend. And here's some stuff about that. Hi, you join me live from my office. Sadly, you are not lucky and neither was I. I did plan to go over and ski in Sasfe on the glacier, but despite my best efforts, the 
weather was not on my side. There was so much snow that the ski area was closed on the Saturday um, due to a high avalanche risk. Then on Sunday, the ski area did reopen only for more snow to fall later in the afternoon, closing the road access to the resort, uh, which meant I would have probably got trapped there. So I chose not to go. And it was quite bad. So, um, sad for me, really. I wanted to test out my skis and my new Magic Pass. I had a new set of skis and a new Magic Pass. That would have been exciting. But it's good news for anyone planning an early ski trip, as there is a lot of snow. It's so good high up that um, if you've probably got some spare holiday time, I'm going to suggest it might be worth a last minute trip. But this time of year, you can get a hotel in Saturday for as little 60 chuffs a night. So I probably wouldn't have been as standard as I thought. I could um, definitely afford that on uh, our sponsorship money. And um, with all this snow, it means that it isn't just... The Saturday Glacier that is open. You can now ski all the way down to the middle station of the Alpine Express. The Marina Chair is open, giving you access to like a thousand metres of vert. I am desperately sad it didn't happen, but I will go skiing very soon, I hope. Right, back to the studio. Right, coming towards the end of the show, Ian. But before we go, we must, let's get some reviews in, shall we? We got any? Well, let's start with uh, one on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> which is from AP Northfields, who's in, you know, replied to us, I know he's a regular, he or she is a regular listener to the show, but anyway, they say, uh, they're just re- referring to our partnership with Switzerland, and they uh, say, uh, congratulations, great accolade for your work, uh, love Switzerland, and they train it there with the family, so they look forward to hearing more on where to explore, and I'll be actually travelling out there by train in March, so uh, uh, we can swap a few notes, thanks for your feedback. Good one. Any more reviews or is that it? Mm, we've got one more review. It's on iTunes. It's our first two-star review. Woo! Uh, That's good, right? Which, well, it's not as good as that. Uh, we have had 43 five-star reviews. We've only had one one-star, and this is our first two-star review. Um, this is how they, you know, you can't please all the people all the time, can you? J underscore MHP says, a fairly dull and middle-aged ski podcast. I had high hopes for this podcast, given it had such excellent ratings and I'm such an avid and keen skier. However, I was left bored after less than an episode. I wonder what episode they listened to. Uh, They really should listen to more of them. Uh, Delivered in a languid and sometimes painful style, which fails capture. I think they meant to write fails to capture. Uh, the vibrant nature of the sport. Uh, listen if you're a boomer who doesn't understand the meaning of shred. Cares more for equipment than ability. Don't think we've ever talked about equipment. And has plenty of time and patience. Not recommended. Uh, so, sadly, I'm sorry we didn't uh, match up to your expectations, J underscore MHP. Um, but thanks for your feedback anyway. It's all appreciated. I'll, I'll try and be less uh, painful. Uh, and I'll try and be less middle-aged. And that's going to be more of a challenge. <laughs> that's going to be more of a challenge. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, Ian, I think I think he has got some points. And I'm not um, saying that he's correct about our podcast. But, you know, it's for an audience and the audience listen if they like it. And if they don't, they don't like it. But I think, you know, um, I definitely understand what shredding is about. But, uh, you know, if every episode was literally about shredding, it would, that would be pretty boring, I think. I think the trouble with skiing is that the act of skiing um itself while thrillingly exciting there's only a certain finite amount of stuff that you can say about that particular feeling and enjoyment and excitement um whereas you know 
uh, it's the, then we then that's where we talk about all the other stuff. Like anyone who likes football, I don't. You know that game lasts ninety minutes. It manages to fill up endless amounts of columns, but essentially it's a soap opera when people talk about all the comings and goings of um, footballers and stuff. Not sure I'm talking about that, but my point is, Ian, that I think you know it would it would be impossible for us to talk about shredding all the time, don't you think? Um, I'm saying I agree. Like a I, you know, I agree. But you know, while I'd rather have you know fantastic uh, reviews the whole time, you just have to you know accept that you can't uh, keep everyone happy. You know, most people seem to like the podcast, and if people don't, if it's not their thing, they don't have to listen. If it is their thing, you know, tell their friends and uh, listen. It, it, it's a way. Uh, it's a way we are, and we're. Are we going to change? Yeah, we probably would change actually if it, if it wasn't working at all. But, uh, you know, I think we have lots of great content and we've got more coming up in our next episode, 44. And we're going to a two-weekly uh, rota now, aren't we? Two-weekly episodes. I think so, yes. Yeah, um, we're going to have a bit more from Chemi Alcott in our next episode. We're going to talk to her at the ski show. A bit more about ski A&E because those guys are so interesting. And by then, will the programme have started? Not quite yet. So it'll be another kind of a pre-programme. Uh, and I believe, do we still have a bit more of your chat in relation to motorhomes in the Alps? Yeah, we could have that. We'll see how we go. You never know what happens in the next two weeks. We could have something even more exciting than motorhoming. Well, actual more skiing, because I'm pretty confident that um, uh, more of the area is going to uh, open up and you're probably going to walk up to the uh, to the top of... Uh, La Clusa. is it called La Balm in La Clusa, the highest yeah, area? Yeah, definitely. Maybe I'll even yeah. hire some stuff and go and have a go. I could just boot yeah. up, I suppose. Be too bad. Cool, well, look uh, forward you to know, it. You never know. Winter, I might winter have even, is I, coming. I might have even been to Valteren then. Ah. Who knows? I will shred um, some shredding. I'm just going to say it now because I think it's funny. Um, so yeah there we go Um, I'm going to go and do some shredding Um, Ian's going to eat some shreddies and uh, everyone's going to think we're really middle-aged and Alan Partridge (laughs) for all of this (laughs) right then thank you very much for listening to the podcast as always thanks to Swiss uh, Switzerland tourism not Swiss tourism that's a completely different country Switzerland tourism for supporting us I'm just staring out the window at loads of snow Ian thank you very much for joining us it's been a good chat as always no problem Jim that was the ski podcast with jim duncombe and ian martin don't forget now is the time to go i really like that podcast i think i'm going to subscribe and go to your podcast player and press the subscribe button do it do it do it now